0: You're listening to the GISS Podcast, a place where we come together and meet the many wonderful people who make GISS what it is a place of learning, of community, diversity, and global citizenship. I'm your host, Joanna Summers, and our guest today is a career international educator, having taught in some places such as China, Jamaica, and Thailand for over 30 years. He teaches TOK in the high school, is an avid golfer, and a mad, one eyed Collingwood supporter. He's the face of GIS and our leader, and he needs very little introduction, of course, because I'm talking about our head of school, Dr. Tarek Razik. Tarek, welcome to the show.
1: Good morning, Joe. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: And look, I'll be honest, we've got a big football game this afternoon, our beloved Collingwood Bagpies, which I'm sure you and I could talk about at length right now. But I'm not sure our audience is perhaps as invested as we are.
1: Really? Are you sure? <laughs> I know our teaching staff is.
0: Well, it depends where we post this, I guess, but but perhaps we'll save that for off-air because we have lots of things um, that I'd really like to pick your brain about today. Um, as I mentioned in the introduction, you have been in education for over three decades now.
1: Are oh, you making me sound old, I Oh, no,
0: I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'll move on. But I do want to, before we talk about education today, I do want to go back in time a little bit and I'd like to start by... Um, talking about Mr. Razik, first-year teacher. Why did you go into teaching? And, and in that first year of teaching, where were you? What were you teaching?
1: When I graduated university, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so my first job, I wanted to do the most difficult thing I could think of. So I sold life insurance door-to-door. Door. <laughs> right? I think that prepared me to be ahead of school. But then, you know, going, reflecting on my, my schooling days, I had some, some really poor teachers. And I felt pretty short-changed by the fact that they really didn't seem to care about me. Mm-hmm. But I also had some really great teachers, and they were inspirational to me, and I wanted to be like them. And so after I sold life insurance for a year, I went into to teaching. And you know, in the States, they usually give the newest, youngest teachers the most difficult students and difficult classes. And so I remember started, when I started teaching, I was like 23 and i was teaching seniors and people who didn't graduate so they were like mm. 18 and 19 not that much younger than i was and didn't want to be in school and so those those were challenging days but i really felt that i wanted to make a difference and that's why i got into teaching mm. and i still teach I, I don't teach TOK by myself luckily i have a, a co-partner co-teacher that i work with and i've always worked with but i've always felt it important to stay connected to the classroom
0: and so what sort of subject areas have you taught over your career
1: english history mm-hmm. and TOK.
0: Yeah. Well, they're the best subjects, let's be honest. That's what I think. <laughs> Math,
1: science, all those people are a different breed altogether.
0: So how did you then end up into in international teaching? Where did you first go?
1: I answered an ad one day in the paper in the Boston Globe. It said, teach overseas. And I was teaching in Vermont, and I thought, you know, wow, there's so many regulations here, and I've been in Vermont for 15 years or so. So I told my parents I was going to try this international school thing for a year or two, and then come back and get serious about education. And uh, that was 32 years ago.
0: And it's something you hear a lot from international teachers. No, mum, I'm just going for two years. I'll be back.
1: Yeah. My mum kept telling me up until her recent passing, uh, when are you going to come back? <laughs> Your two years has extended by quite a bit. So I took yeah. the first dive and I jumped right into Jamaica. Right, So I went from Vermont mm-hmm. to downtown Kingston, Jamaica. And that was quite an eye-opening experience because... You know, one of the questions people always ask me is, we've been to so many places, where, where are the best students? Mm. And, you know, there really are no best students. All, all children are the same. All children are hungry and eager to learn and looking for, you know, the passion in us educators. And kids are the same around the world. Mm. It's, um, it's how we handle them, right, and how we, how we show our love of learning and our care,
0: mm.
1: right, for children. That's what differs.
0: Yeah, and that love for our children too, you know, which is, is what we... Uh, Feel even more strongly this year, perhaps as well. Yes. So, from Jamaica?
1: Puerto Rico, US Virgin Islands. And so, I did a Caribbean swing, which was kind of mm. like international light, right? <laughs> because that was like a two hour flight from home. Yeah. And then, all of a sudden, I was at a job fair. And I was hiring for my school, and I ended up interviewing with the, the head of school from Shanghai. And I didn't even know where Shanghai was at the mm. time. I was over there in China, someplace. And this was 2000. And then next thing you know, I was on the plane to to Shanghai, China, in 2000. Booming uh, time to be in China, mm. right? And then from China, from Shanghai to Bangkok, and from Bangkok to Beijing, and then from Beijing to Jakarta.
0: Well, and this is where you've been now for four years. Correct. So, having spent over three decades abroad, now you must have experienced many highs and lows in your international life, and and jumping from all of those different countries. What do you think have been your most challenging experiences in international education? You know, and a follow-up question to that is, I think, how do you think it's perhaps shaped you as a person? Mm-hmm.
1: I think the highs are always the newness of of going into a new country with your eyes wide open, the sounds, the smells, your senses are just tingling. And you know, part of part of being an international educator is you're not at home, right? So you're taking a leap of faith, and it's a bit of an adventure, and you're trusting the systems around you, that you're going to be okay, And so that's kind of that's exciting, but it's a little bit daunting at the same time. You know, working with different visa processes and immigration processes, some of which are easier than others, trying to learn a language to really get yourself into the culture of the country, Mm. because I believe that if you really want to learn the culture and you really want to understand where you live and, and maximize your time there, you really need to learn the language because that allows you then to operate in in different circles and get deeper into the culture. I really need to prioritize that here in <laughs> Indonesia, right? Uh, but some places everybody wants to speak English, right? Mm. So you're you're kind of stuck. I think the biggest challenges uh, I think are you know coming to Indonesia at first was uh, Neil and Ferdi. Mm. And trying to help sort that out, which thank goodness we did. I think, you know, Indonesia presents a a different set of challenges because you everywhere you go you have government relations, and you need to make sure that you remember you're a guest in the country, Mm. and you have to spend a lot of time maintaining and developing those relationships with your host country regulators, right? Uh, To make sure that the school is seen in good stead, and I think our BTI scholarship program and trying to really partner with Indonesia mm. so that JIS is seen as a contributor to Indonesia, not as isolated or in a bubble. And I think many international schools and often sometimes uh, individuals operate in a bubble. Mm. And then I don't think you're, you're adding value to the country or the experience. And mm-hmm. so we've tried to, to break that down a little bit. And I think the BTI scholarship is a good example of, of what we've done here.
0: And of course, we're living through perhaps one of the most difficult periods of of your career and all of our lives um, for for most of us. And so I want to rewind a little bit to March 10th, 2020. I think it was March 10th. You made the immensely difficult decision to close campus for two weeks. Let's go away for two weeks and let's see what happens. As the realities of COVID started kicking in here in Indonesia, um, had someone told you then, Uh, that a year later we would still be learning remotely, I imagine it would have been just too difficult to, com- to contemplate. Really, um, so I guess my question is, what have you learned about the past year leading a school through a global pandemic, and ha- what have you learned about the GIST community here?
1: Well, I'm still learning, Joe. <laughs> you know, f- first of all, I never took a class in college. On how to handle something like this. Mm. And I, there is no playbook, there is no manual that I can turn to and say, okay, when this happens, here's what you do during a pandemic. So, you know, you rely on the experts around you, you rely a lot on gust, gut instinct, you rely on information, and you use a lot of common sense. Mm. Now, interestingly enough, Joe, I didn't make the decision to close the school on March 10th. That was actually my TOK class. Oh that did that because we were in class and I was with Kurt Johnson and we were having, TOK is like philosophy and then we're having a discussion and and I said, you know, come up with a knowledge question about the pandemic and the the students came up with, you know, is the head of school putting student lives in jeopardy by remaining open? Mm -hmm. And we had this big discussion and then we talked about the pros and the cons of being on campus versus being on off campus. And then the students really convinced me that we were better off, you know, being safe so i got in touch with my school board and i said hey here's what here's what we think here's what i think and we made that difficult decision you know in hindsight we were one of the first schools to close and we criticized a little bit for that and i kept thinking okay well we'll we'll go away for march break we'll clean the school we'll come back and we'll reopen and then i thought okay well we'll go away for summer we'll clean the school we'll come back and we'll reopen and that hasn't really worked out that well i think what i've learned is patience and balance and calmness because I've also learned to respect people's different levels of anxiety around the calmness, because everybody reacts differently to this. Mm. And I've tried to remain consistent and calm and communicate as best I can, understanding that some people are more anxious than others. Mm. And that's been that's been the biggest op- eye-opening experience for me, is that no two people are handling this alike. Some people are very casual, very chill about it. Okay, yeah, it's okay. Mm-hmm. And other people are extremely anxious about it. And I have to respect everybody's different perspective and try to find that middle path where people look to me as someone who's stable um, and reliable. So I think communication has been the key. And we've tried to communicate. I think our communication just has been good. We you know, try to look at what to communicate, when to communicate, and how to communicate. Mm-hmm. And the information that we're getting from various sources, we try to pass along in a timely manner. But I think that that's probably the most important thing I've learned. The other bit, I think, is mental and physical well-being. You're trying to make sure you exercise, look after yourself, because we've realized that relationships suffer a lot during the pandemic because of the online Zoom effect, if you will. Mm. That's an interesting thing to think about Zoom, because Zoom didn't exist, right? March 10th last year, it was this thing called Skype. <laughs> you remember Skype? Yeah. Where's Skype now? Yeah. And how did Skype go away and Zoom all of a sudden took over? So... I think I've learned really the value of relationships, Joe, and how you really need to put people first.
0: And you know, something I, I think about every day when I teach my students is I'm blown away by how resilient they are. I mean, what have you really noticed in your own students throughout the last year?
1: You know, the part of the best, probably the best parts of my day, are when I get to go with mm-hmm. Uchiro and we get to teach TOK. Um, the students are extremely resilient. They've been such great cheerleaders for the school for themselves for education and they just they kind of bounce with it they go with it Mm -hmm. and they're doing really really well um you know life has changed for them especially for our juniors and seniors in a in a a different way i mean everybody's been impacted but my juniors that we teach they've been wonderful they've been very helpful Mm -hmm. um i like to ask students opinions right and i think a couple weeks ago we went through the school and ask people's opinions about you know, what could school do differently? How can school look different post-pandemic? Mm. I'm reading a really good book right now called, I think it's called Post-Corona by Scott Galloway, um, a professor at New York Stern, New York University Stern School of Business, which really has shed a lot of light on you know, how people are going to thrive post-corona. Because this, this will go away. Mm. I mean, I, I thought it was going to be like SARS again i was completely wrong there because i went through sars in shanghai and sars just kind of ended mm. and i thought this too might just end but clearly i got that one wrong
0: and i think you know touching on what you're you're talking about with the students i think there's so much as adults we can learn from our students in terms and our children in terms of how flexible and agile and um you know, happy to, okay, well, we're going to go with something new now. I think there's a lot we can learn from that.
1: I think our students, they know how to play me too. And I think, <laughs> you know, poor Yuchiro, because we never get through the lesson, because I'm always <laughs> asking the students like, okay, what should I do about this? You know, yeah. should I reopen or not? And then everybody's got an opinion. And I think they know how to work me now.
0: Yeah, that's so. a strategy. That's let's get Dr. Razik talking. <laughs> exactly. We don't have to learn today. <laughs> exactly.
1: Exactly.
0: I want to um, switch conversations for a moment to talk about accreditation. So JIS has been engaging in an accreditation process over the past two years with CIS and MOSC, um, and it's due to wrap up in November of this year, 2021. Can you talk us through this process and what it means for a school to go through accreditation?
1: Sure, Joe. You know, accreditation is not something that people wake up and be like, yeah, we're going to go tackle accreditation today. Because people really don't understand it, the, the depth of accreditation. And what it is, is it's an opportunity to self-reflect Mm. and check ourselves against what we say we're doing against a set of international best practice standards. And there really is no right or wrong answer, but it's looking at you know what we say we're doing and are we really doing? Can we show evidence and proof that we're doing it against this set of standards that CIS and WASP puts forward? It's a very therapeutic mm. process. I mean, in the UK and other places, you might call it an inspection but we call it, I like to call it a self-reflection. And I just came back this week from doing a virtual visit, uh, two weeks ago, sorry, to Australia, to a school in Australia. And I sit on a team with five or six other people from around the world, and we zoomed in. We didn't travel there, obviously. But we got to go into a school and talk to people and ask them questions and look at evidence of the standards and where are you meeting the standard, or are you not meeting the standards, and then provide them feedback. And so I get to see it from both sides. And it's very, very helpful. It's very beneficial. A lot of work goes into a Mm self-study. This self-study here has been very inclusive. Everybody from the community to the board, to the students, to the staff, to the support staff, everybody's a part of it. And so accreditation really seeks to bring a school together Mm -hmm. as a community, reflect on what you're doing, and look at how you can do things a bit better because we can all improve, right?
0: And certainly with our draft due today, our draft um, self-study, I'm excited to see what are some of the things that we're reflected on.
1: Yeah, and it's a good opportunity for people to, to demonstrate leadership mm. um, in, a, in a really meaningful way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, the school is currently working on a new strategic plan as well in parallel with our accreditation process. What excites you about the new GIS 2.0 learning model and where the future of education lies at GIS?
1: There's a good quote that I use often and it goes like this, it goes, you don't plan to fail, you fail to plan, mm-hmm. okay? And schools, there's, a, there's often debates about strategic plans and the value and the length and the depth and whether the plan should be focused operationally or educationally. And I think just has taken the opportunity right now to refocus a very successful destiny plan, which is what our previous one was called, and now try to look out in the future of learning and I think COVID has acted as an accelerant mm. to where we're going to be and how we use technology. I really want us to look at how we use our time with students. We talked yesterday in a strategic planning meeting about what it means to be future ready. And are we, what are we preparing our students for? Are we preparing them for the next grade level? Are we preparing them for university? Or are we preparing them for, you know, be, to be productive citizens in the world? And you know, how are we doing that? So I think the strategic plan is pretty exciting. There's a lot of work that goes into it. It's been very inclusive. And hopefully when we come out of this, we're gonna have some, some exciting things that people are gonna gather around and really wanna bring energy to, uh, with some metrics to measure. Because a lot of times strategic plans can get kind of lofty and you talk about creativity and resilience, and then you get stuck like, well, how do we measure creativity? How do we measure resilience? They sound nice, we all want it, but how do we know it when we see it? Mm-hmm. So that's where it gets tricky. And that's why you, we get people in the room together just thinking creatively and constructively, and we come up with some of those metrics. And you know, strategic planning is like like virtual thinking. You just get to try anything, throw it against the wall, see what sticks, and then figure out how does it fit in the overall scheme of where you want to go in support of your mission and vision, which should drive your strategic planning. Mm-hmm. And see, I get a little bit excited about it, sorry. <laughs>
0: And Tarek, certainly thinking back to Mr. Vazic, first year teacher who wanted to be a caring and a loving and an inspirational teacher, Um, I have no doubt that in the past 32 years you've achieved that. It's been an honour and a privilege to talk to you today, Tarek.
1: Thanks, Joe. Thanks, everybody, for listening. It's always a pleasure to talk about schools and teaching and learning.
0: And now we'll go off air and talk football. Sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Tarek.
1: Cheers, Joe.